morning. Welcome back to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Today we're talking with Kenneth Swope, the author of The Military Collapse of China's Ming Dynasty, 1618-44, to published by Rutledge. Now, before going any further, I must admit that New Books in Military History, in the past, has generally overlooked works on early modern military history, let alone any from an Asian perspective. So when I received this copy of the book from the publisher... I was very eager to read it in the chat with with Ken about his work. Needless to say, the serious military history related to the Ming Dynasty is very hard to come by in the United States. Ken does a terrific job in making a topic which few Americans are even aware of, relatable, readable, and relevant. Ken, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Um, hello? Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's fun sure. to talk about the book. Great, great. You want to share some of your own professional background with our listeners, you know, that and what brought you to this topic? Sure. Actually, um, it's kind of funny that getting into this particular book, and I think I put it in the preface there, actually goes all the way back to my undergrad days and um, at the College of Worcester in Ohio, and I did an undergrad thesis on the fall of the Ming Dynasty and the um, founding of the Manchu Dynasty, the Qing Dynasty in China, and a sort of a real sort of meta-narrative um, that went from the 1570s through the 1680s in that as an undergrad, but it was based pretty much all on secondary sources because I didn't read enough Chinese at that point to do my own research. And obviously it was kind of general and derivative. And then subsequently what's happened is essentially most of the work I've done as a professional historian has sort of grown out of that undergrad thesis, amazingly enough. And I've written books that sort of build upon, you know, ideas I had way back then, but I've since they're, they all sort of fit together. And it's interesting. So the first monograph I published a few years ago was on the Ming assistance to Korea when Japan invaded in the 1590s. Right, and, right. Um, and then this book actually sort of serves as a sequel to that um, in the sense of people are asking, well, what happens after that? If the Ming was so militarily powerful as of 1600, what happened, you know, a few years later? <laughs> and so I pick up the story. And what was fun for me is that it really does sort of serve as a sequel. There are a lot of the same historical figures, you know, the same actors, you know, characters, if you will, um, you know, show up in this book that were in the last one. And then the book I'm working on now is a sequel to the one we're talking about today. And again, so I'm just picking up the story and going another 20 years and exploring the Qing conquest in Southwest China and sort of what happens to a bunch of these characters and figures, as well as what happens to the population. I'm really getting into the local history level now with the stuff I'm doing and reading a lot of interesting sources. But so in terms of, you know, the kind of academic background, it sort of spirals out of my undergrad work and then my grad work at the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And um, it was interesting because at the time I went in there and I, I sort of knew I wanted to do military history that I would just always seem to be drawn. I, I liked Asian history in general, obviously, but to right, be drawn right. to the military topics. And as you noted, especially then, and it's not nearly the, the same case now, but back in the you know early 90s when I was first getting into this kind of stuff and in the mid-90s when I was starting on my dissertation, there was very little out there in English on uh, yeah. modern or early modern Chinese military history at all. I mean, you know, Parker had written the Military Revolution book and he talks about Japan a little bit in there and things like that, but there really wasn't much out there. And so it was really fertile ground. And the thing about it, and it should come out, it comes out, I think, in all the monographs, it wasn't for lack of sources. 
it was basically for lack of interest, you know, the intellectual predilections of people that were working on um, Chinese history were interested in looking at other things, you know, civil government, bureaucracy, Confucianism, other things. And, and, and actually the field itself was largely shaped by, you know, sometimes the political leanings and interests of those in China studies and in some cases reactions to the Vietnam War and trying to find an alternative to you know, imperialistic Western military history and that sort of thing. And so when they went to China, like, oh, here's a philosopher kingdom that didn't value military accomplishment. And, and so they sort of wanted to find this and they found it. Um, but it, uh, you know, it's not really necessarily an accurate portrayal of the Chinese past. And as I started digging into primary sources, I found a, an entire sort of you know, subculture of militarism and martial values and things like that. And, um, you know, in terms of even the deeper background, I think I always tell people the reason I get into Chinese military history is because back in the 80s, I watched a lot of kung fu theater on cable. <laughs> and... and um, and that, that sort of got me into martial arts history and you know, sort of the Chinese background. And, and I read Shogun in high school and I was into, you know, Asian stuff. And that, that sort of led me down this path, which was, I always think it's kind of funny and interesting. This sort of- I, I got to tell you, Kate, that's probably the most honest appraisal of, of someone's predilection for military history in a particular area that I've heard. Um, <laughs> most people wouldn't be that so honest, I think. <laughs> Hey, I, I'm just excited that now the L-Ray network on cable has, you know, Shaolin Thursdays. And so they, they have all the old 70s Chinese martial arts films every Thursday night. And it, it's just fun. To, the same things I watched as a kid. So now I'll tune in and, and get my fix. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. That reminds me of the 4.30 movie back here when I was a kid. <laughs> they would occasionally have those. Interspersed with various Godzilla movies. Yeah, but I, but I, was I digress. I was a huge Godzilla fan too, <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, in my modern Japanese history class I teach, I often use God. There's actually a, an extensive Godzilla scholarly literature out there now, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, so I use some of that stuff in my modern Japan classes when I teach it. So that's another book and another interview. Yeah. <laughs> so let's bring us back on course here. Um, okay. Uh, well, I guess the first question I have is, you know, how do the Chinese themselves respond to a Western-style academic critique of their past? It's um, it, it sort of kind of runs on two tracks. Um, on one hand, in some cases, and, and this is sort of going away, but you have the kind of traditionalists in some cases who argue that, well, you know, no foreigner can truly understand China. And none of them have the requisite cultural and linguistic skills to do a good job. Um, the other sort of track, which I think has definitely picked up steam and is much more viable now, are the people who are very interested in what Westerners are doing because we come at it without cultural baggage yeah. and, and look at it. And in some ways, you know, the, the rose-colored glasses or whatever aren't on. And so they're interested to see, okay, what kind of interpretive approaches are we bringing? We're not coming at it with a Maoist ideological straitjacket, or you know, we're not worried about offending the Chinese government by saying something that could be seen as a critique of the regime or something like that. And so some of them are very excited about that and interested to see how we bring in 
the histories of other places. Because China, you know, frankly, like most countries, the the history of the country and the historiography itself tends to be a little provincial in the sense of, you know, they talk to each other and they study their past. And there's not necessarily a lot of engagement with people that are doing work outside of China or in other countries and places. Everybody kind of wants to think their history is special and unique. And certainly with China, with it being so long, that's the initial, well, it's so long, how can anyone really make comparisons to other places. And um, so, but now I'm seeing more interest. They're translating more works um, from English into Chinese on Chinese history. You can find it in some of the bookstores in the big cities and stuff now. And, um, you know, people will come to talks. They'll engage with you. Um, there, there's, it's definitely opening up a little more. And they're interested to see the sort of methodologies and stuff that we're applying and how we're understanding it because it's not necessarily ideologically driven for people coming out from outside of China. And it's definitely changed there, too. If you read stuff that they were producing in the Maoist era compared to the kind of history they're doing now, it's very different. And you're seeing a lot less ideology and a lot more, you know, the kind of critical analysis of source materials and things that you you come to expect in the U.S. or Europe or whatever. I mean, it would go without saying, I think, that your book or any of your work, any Westerners' work, would be you know, reviewed by two different audiences in China. One would be the, the academic audience, and the other would be the party. And do those different audiences mesh together? Do they, do they operate separately? Or? Yeah, um, they do. The thing is, is for, like, the, the concerns about kind of, you know, government interpretations and stuff, it doesn't matter so much if you're doing pre-20th century history. Okay. That's that's much less of an issue. You know, the Ming Dynasty history is not particularly uh, contentious. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so it's not so much an issue for that. Um, you know, as it would be, I've got friends who work on, you know, the the 20th century and the Chinese communist era, and it's, they gotta be, and not necessarily careful, but certainly... I think their stuff might get scrutinized in a way that mine just would never, it wouldn't happen. Right. Um, it's just not as, as interested. It's more definitely the straightforward academic audience. So though what is interesting, though, actually, is that Ming history in particular, Ming and Qing history, are very popular in just a broad sense. And so there are TV shows, several Ming historians have become essentially celebrities in China because they do these talk shows on TV and they read sources of Ming history. And there are Huh, there's this huge industry of dramas, historical yeah. dramas on Chinese TV, just like Korean TV, and um, and a lot of them are set in the Ming Dynasty. It's right. it's it's far enough back that it's sort of exotic, but everybody can kind of recognize it and has some sense of what the Ming was, the Ming and Qing, and so you can do things. You can have fancy costumes. You can have a lot of sword play and stuff. Um, you know, you're, you don't have to worry about the kind of political implications of it. Um, and so it's really interesting. And so a lot of books on Ming history, even academic books, have been essentially bestsellers in China. Oh, how interesting. I mean, I, I guess it's kind of analogous to the United States Civil War history. Yeah, yeah I think that'd be a good, definitely a good uh, comparison. Well, let's, let's, let's go on. I mean, what about your access to sources? You know, the, the kind of challenges that historians face in working with early modern sources in China. I mean, I imagine that, that some of the similar caveats to working with contemporary European sources, uh, you know, the inconsistency, opinion, rumor, innuendo, and such that appear in those sources, 
Well, again, I'm reading your book. I mean, it seems the Chinese sources also appear to be far more specific and detail-oriented. Is that really the case, or is there, a, like, a blend of the two? Or Yeah, I would say, in general, yeah, they are more detail-specific. Um, and the, the huge advantage you have... In um, in China, especially this period, like late Ming China, is that you've just got so many more sources than you have for a contemporary, you know, anywhere else in the world. So, I mean, the the, the statistic I always throw out in my classes is that in Ming China, as of say sixteen hundred, there were more books than in the rest of the world combined. So you've just got, uh, I mean, when I talk to early modernists from other players, they just can't believe the number of sources we have and the detail. And because it was a very, it was a highly literate culture, even down to the you know commoner level culture. And so there were a lot of things produced for mass consumption, for private distribution, for, you know, imperial purposes. And so the nice thing about it is that a lot of documentation has survived and you can cross-check a lot of facts. And so there are rumors and stories and things like that, but in most cases, you can really do a lot of cross-checking and, um, you know, really pin down specifics and, and get a sense of, you know, what is the most accurate representation. But it's also good because that level of detail and the multiplicity of sources allow you to sort of understand something about, you know, the factions that were squabbling back and forth, what the viewpoints were, what the debates were militarily in terms of, okay, what are we going to do here? Are we going to, you know, launch this campaign? Are we going to go defensive over here? And so those court records have survived and just huge masses of documentation. And what's also great about the Chinese case is that they've recognized the significance importance of this. So they keep publishing even today, they're publishing these massive, you know, documentary collections of materials from the archives or from, um, you know, private collections or whatever. And so every time I go to China, I find new document collections that are still being published in hardcover, like, right. a, like a hard copy. I mean, they're, they're, they're digitizing more and more, but, um, you know, there's, they're, they're just churning out this hard copy stuff still, which is great. I mean, um, I'm old fashioned. I don't like to read stuff digitally. I, I like I like a book in my hand. But one last question on process and stuff: How was the book received in China? You know, was there an official response to it? Um, and again, did you confront any of the kind of chauvinism directly that you describe with uh, regard to Chinese academics looking at an American dabbling in their in their area? Um, to tell you the truth, I haven't seen much of anything yet. Um, I mean, what well, this published what late la or late the year before last, right? Late twenty thirteen, mm-hmm. um, like right at the end of the year. And is to my knowledge, it hasn't been translated into Chinese yet. Okay. And so we'll see what happens then. Um, if if that happens, then there'll be there'll probably be a more significant response. But I haven't seen it there. When I when I was over there last summer, I didn't see copies for sale anywhere and stuff. So I know a few people knew about it because I saw a couple of my Chinese uh, colleagues at uh, People's University in Beijing, and they knew about it. Um, but I haven't seen much of a response yet, so we'll we'll have to see what uh, what transpires in the next uh, year or two. It usually, in most cases, when stuff comes out in English, even if they're going to translate it, it's going to take usually three to five years at least, and some okay. cases longer. I mean, there there when I was there last year, a professor's book had just been translated to English or to Chinese from English, and her book was published in 1991. 
Um, and, uh, and it was a pretty, pretty famous book. And now I think it's kind of dated and it was sort of pointless to translate it in my opinion, but whatever, it got translated now. Um, and so it could take a long time. And, um, and so I haven't seen, and I haven't seen any reviews in Chinese of it yet. Um, so I've seen, you know, American reviews in English and journals over here, but even here, it's still, it's still in that cycle. Like stuff is, you know, stuff's still coming out. Okay. Okay. Um, right. Well, let's just have some context for our listeners. Uh, and we'll start with a big question. What was the state militarily of the Ming Dynasty before the period you, you introduced here? Okay, well, um, what had happened with the Ming is that they had hit a military low point in the 1570s. Um, as a result of a variety of different internal and external factors and poor leadership, etc. Um, but what happened in the 1570s? A new emperor had come to the throne, the Emperor Wanli, and he had he was a he was a boy, but he had a number of pretty competent officials who sort of served as his regents and advisors. And from the 1570s through the 1590s, the this sort of group of officials. And then some military commanders presided over some uh, military revival, you know, modernization, streamlining, whatever you want to call it. And um, they faced a number of military challenges along the frontiers and most significantly a major invasion of Korea in the 1590s, which, you know, few people outside of East Asia know about. But that was actually the biggest military conflict in the world in the 16th century in terms of troops. I mean, the Japanese mobilized half a million troops for that war, um, which is you know, staggering when you're talking about 1590 um, sure. and, uh, and the, you know, the size of Japan. And so, you know, very devastating war. But the, uh, the Chinese and Koreans managed to win it. So the Ming had done pretty well in the 1590s, and they suppressed some other uprisings along the frontier. And so then getting into the early uh, 17th century, they were coming off this, but there were still other problems multiplying along the frontier, particularly in the Northeast, where it's where the, you know, these uh, people called the Jurchens, who uh, they take the term Manchu, they apply that to themselves later in the 1630s. Okay. They're, they're the Manchus, right. but, uh, but their, their original tribal name was Jurchens. And there were a number of different Jurchen tribes. And so they had actually participated in the war in Korea, or at least they had volunteered to go to Korea, and the Ming said, no, that's all right, because they were vassal states uh, of, the, of the Ming. Right. And they volunteered to go, and the Ming said, that's okay, that's okay, we don't want you to go there. Um, but then the Japanese inv- went into Manchuria and fought some of these guys. And then came back. And so um, so this is already a sort of hot spot that the Ming were trying to control. And in the early 17th century, this chieftain, Nurhachi, who obviously is a very big figure in the book, was consolidating control over the other tribal chieftains, sort of picking them off militarily, making marriage alliances, doing things to kind of consolidate his authority in the Northeast. And basically, you know, he was empire building. And so that was going on in the Northeast. And there were, you know, some unrest with the Mongol tribes in the Northwest and then some Aboriginal unrest in the Southwest. Um, there are a variety of different, you know, minority peoples, the Chinese call them Miao, the Bo, the Yi. And they had crushed a huge rebellion there in the 1590s. But the, the sort of fallout from this was that these other groups were upset about that. And, um, and so there was some unrest down there. And so that sort of, when, you, when you're in this early 17th century, they were coming off some victories, 
but the um, the military threats were multiplying, and also the problem was that um, the court was increasingly factionalized, and the emperor was getting fed up with the opposition of a lot of officialdoms, certain policies he had um, in terms of tax collection, et cetera. And so the, the government, at just the time when it needed to be united and vigorous, was completely dysfunctional and uh, in gridlock. And that uh, had serious repercussions, as you know from reading the book, right, throughout the next you know, three decades. Right. right. The, the numbers of troops that you described, in the various battles and campaigns are massive. I mean, you know, points you're, points you're talking about 120,000, 250,000 troops being deployed by various Ming forces, let alone the, the, the Qing or other opposition uh, factions. And I'm not going to question the figures, but what I think is important here is what this says or offers about Ming-era social and political organization. You know, how difficult was it to raise, manage equip and train such a volume of men? Yeah, well, um, in terms of, like, raising the numbers, they, they had, there were a combination of things that they did. They had um, this hereditary military system um, called the Wei Swa, the guard battalion system. And so some of these troops were um, essentially what you had to do is if you were a military family, every generation you had to provide at least one able-bodied man for service. And so these military families, the system had largely declined by the 17th century, but it was still around. And some of the commanders, a lot of the prominent guys, were you know these career officers whose fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers had all been soldiers. And so you had those units who were scattered around the empire. And then they also did a lot of raising of mercenaries. And so um, it seems to have not been a particularly difficult thing to get the numbers of troops, in part because of natural disasters and other economic problems that were plaguing the empire. I mean, it wasn't just the political problems. A lot of people were out of work, and um, becoming a soldier was a way to make money. The standard of living could be higher. There was uh, there was access to social mobility that you would not have as a normal peasant, I mean, because you could rise up. And, and, I mean, in one campaign, they were often paid based on booty acquired in a campaign or special rewards. You could easily make, you know, several times the amount of money you would make for a full year in another job. And so getting the numbers was not necessarily a problem, but some of the other stuff really was a problem. Um, training, mm-hmm. um, supply, food, standardizing equipment, um, the original system that they had set up was pretty ingenious. I mean, they had a very sophisticated training system at the beginning of the Ming Dynasty where they had specialized training divisions in the capital in Nanjing and then later in Beijing that all the troops were supposed to rotate through you know, every three years or whatever and get training in the use of firearms, get cavalry training, get all these other sort of specialized trainings. Um, that had declined quite a bit by this period, and so it was really haphazard. And throughout the the book, as you saw, right, there were efforts to try to whip the guys into shape, yeah, and and to uh, you know bring, you know up the training methods, spend time more time drilling, and it's and the problem with that is that it definitely was was dependent upon individual commanders and their subordinates, and then how effective they were, and it became very personalistic, and so. While it wasn't complete degeneration into warlordism, certainly the power of these these semi-independent military guys was growing 
in the last decades of the Ming, and the emperors were unable to kind of check that. And I think that's one of the big problems at the very end is that none of these rulers had a very good relationship with the commanders in the field, whereas at least Wan Li, the emperor who dies in 1619, for a while earlier in his career as emperor, he was he, he definitely had, a, had some kind of bond with these right. commanders and was able to kind of rein them in, and that sort of goes by the wayside. And so they're always making efforts. I mean, and they brought in European trainers to help them, you know, build cannon and train in firearms tactics. But right. then the you know, the politics of the court would come into play, and people were like, oh, we can't have foreigners training our troops, or we don't trust these guys in Beijing. And um, there were always these other sort of cross-cutting um, currents that were going on that prevented that. But it was interesting all the experiments they did. I mean, they they did use a you know heavy use of you know artillery. Mm-hmm. Advanced firearms, advanced training. Um, I've just, since I published this book, I've become aware that there were some experiments with actually building Renaissance fortresses, star fortresses. Really? So, yeah, um, which a, a couple of obscure Chinese sources were made aware to me, you know, a few months after I published this book. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. But uh, they, they didn't really take off. Right. Um, you know, but the fact is that they knew about it and, and that they were trying to make some of these reforms. It's pretty interesting. Well, that's significant because that really, you know, takes the, the Parker thesis in, in, a, in a way and makes sends it into like a you know, giving it even greater global significance about the idea of you know artillery and artillery fortifications driving this kind of of uh, exponential development of technologies and tactics in military affairs, which is interesting. Um, I mean, that I raises the question, you know, well, how much comparison should we make with what was happening in Western Europe at the time? You know, looking at the dates alone, I mean, 1618 to 1644, I mean, that's a, that's a direct overlap to some pretty significant events taking place in Central Europe, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's definitely worthwhile. Um, if nothing else, to, for me, it's to kind of make people aware of the fact that, you know, China was not in stasis. And, um, you know, technologically or, you know, even administratively, I mean, they were confronting serious military challenges and coming up with creative efforts to, you know, solve these problems. And um, so in, in a comparative sense, it's, it's not simply, oh, this is a period where they're all falling behind and technology is stagnant. In fact, no, it's a very vibrant period where they're really aggressively looking to deal with these military threats as well as reconstruct a society that's falling apart. And the other real area of comparison and connection, which comes out in the book, and Jeffrey Parker's new book talks about this a lot too, um, is of course the 17th century crisis mm-hmm. and the kind of global you know, epidemics and the you know, global uh, cooling. And I actually referenced that in the book. There are a couple instances where because of extended bad weather, you know, crops weren't, um, the crop harvest yields were not as great. Um, you know, in, the, in that one particular battle I referenced, the ocean was frozen right. out to this island that was its supply depot. And the Manchus were able to gallop because it happened to snow that morning. Their horses could gallop across the ice and seize the supply depot. And that was, you know, that was sort of luck in the sense that it had been 30 years of cold weather. And that normally never happens. I and mean, it hasn't happened in centuries. Mm-hmm. That part of the ocean is frozen. And um, so I think that's one of the other interesting, real interesting points of comparison is how these, you know, sort of broader, you know, I guess they're calling it climate change now, right? Um, 
how these things are also manifested in what's going on in China and then how they, you know, try to deal with that. And, um, and, and just their, their awareness of these other developments going on outside. Um, there was a book published, but I think a year before, before mine, I right, called the lost colony. That's about the seizure of Taiwan from the Dutch mm-hmm. and gets into the, the military revolution. So, mm-hmm. okay. What was the composition of these armies? You know, were they predominantly peasant levies or were they divided into specialized Europe? Uh, units? Um, yeah, it was a mix of uh, professional mercenaries who would have been soldiers that were trained and went through the regular military system. Um, some of them were peasant conscripts. Um, some of them were Manchu, or uh, rather Mongol mercenaries who had you know been recruited from Mongolia and were part of the Ming armies. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing they really started using, which is interesting, is somewhat like the British, I guess later, they came up with this notion that the aboriginals of southwest China were essentially martial races. And so they would heavily recruit the, there's a group called the Wolf Troops from Guizhou province and the Miao and these groups from the southwest that um, had this reputation for being very fierce fighters and, and tough and that sort of thing. And so there were really these kind of multi-ethnic polyglot armies. And um, the way it would work is most commanders would have a group of what they called housemen. And that would be a group of usually between 500 and up to about 3,000 troops that were kind of their personal elite troops. And and then the mass of troops would be either peasant conscripts or these other mercenaries and stuff. And what would happen is that the the mass troops would be used in frontal assaults or in you know cavalry attacks if they were using Mongols and stuff. But then when an opening would be presented, then the commander and his elite troops would try to hit that opening and then and then you know follow upon it and you know get a breach in a wall or break a line or something like that. And and one of the interesting things is that the Chinese commanders they were expected to lead from the front and be mm-hmm. the thick of the battle. They weren't like the Japanese who would sit on the back of a hill and wave flags and stuff. Uh, that wasn't how the, the Chinese commanders fought. And so there's a staggering number of, you know, Ming commanders that die in battle um, because, you know, that's what you're expected to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that would be the kind of thing. And the other thing that happens actually in terms of, well, you have these bandits. And, and so a lot of the armies in this part of the discipline problem, a lot of the armies are also, they would then been former bandits. Right. And so that are enrolled in the army as a way of kind of settling them, but then using them against either other bandits or against the Manchus. And many people drifted to the military in the 1620s because they were making cuts, uh, interestingly, in the Postal Service, which was the main um, service that employed people out in northwest China. And so these people either joined the army or became bandits. When the, when the service was cut. And in fact, the guy who eventually over, who seizes Beijing, Li Zicheng, he was one of those guys. He was a laid off postal worker who, who becomes a, yes. So the first, the first recorded case of, you know, going postal, right, is actually the Ming dynasty. Well, let's make another cultural comparison. You know, in Europe, this is a period of religious-based conflict, you know, particularly in Central Europe with the Thirty Years' War, but also elsewhere in, in Europe as well. The immediate thing that comes to my mind in looking at this is the savage brutality that becomes a hallmark of these wars. Now let's look again back to the Ming Wars. Are they equally brutal? Uh, Is there an equal amount of savagery, particularly targeting civilian populations, or is there a measure of restraint? Yeah. 
I don't think there's much restraint, though it doesn't have that religious dimension. Um, you know, there are, you occasionally have these religiously based uprisings and secret societies in China, um, but you don't have religious wars like you do in Europe. Um, but there's definitely a tremendous level of savagery, and it's hard to explain exactly why this is, except that it seems to be okay to, you know, entirely wipe out your enemy at times, but you see it. Um, you know, with massacres of cities, and the the sources always talk about this. And and of course, one of the problems was that the troops, as in other places, often that was part of their reward was you get to sack and loot and rape and pillage your way through the city once it's once it's captured. Um, or if they don't submit, then they basically have opened themselves up to whatever you know fate you want to perpetrate upon them. And then there is also this sense of perpetrating atrocities in order to, you know, psychologically affect the next town mm-hmm. or the next place. So, you know, they're going to know this is coming. Therefore, it will make things easier later. And in fact, in the sources, they will sometimes actually use that language. The population was massacred so as to set an example. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the savagery, and that's actually at the heart of the book I'm working on now, is the savagery and the, the social dislocation caused by these uprising things. And some people have said, well, the problem, the reason they do this is because they're essentially illiterate peasants who don't know any better. You know, they're not the proper type of warrior. Um, but that doesn't really seem to matter. I mean, and there were generals who tried to restrain their troops. And there's plenty of, when you read the imperial documents, they always say, you're not supposed to loot don't take even a single grain of rice from the locals. Um, but, you know, there was plenty of it going on and, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, some people have said, well, this was just, that was the system. It was an imperial, despotic, cruel system. And this is sort of, this is how it manifested in warfare without, you know, the, the hand of the government to check it. But, um, but yeah, there is a tremendous amount of bloodshed and savagery and, and just the casualty figures. The other thing, of course, that's actually behind that is that the soldiers got rewarded for the number of, of people they killed. Oh. And, and, and what you would do is you were supposed to submit the severed ears of your victims um, as bounty. And then you got, a, you got a cash reward for each ear you turned in. Um, it was the left ear. You couldn't, you couldn't, you know, uh, double dip and take, you know, two ears and count it as two kills. Um, so they were the left ears that were taken in because ears were more portable than heads. Um, and then they would submit those for, uh, for, um, for reward. And so that actually led to abuses because, you know, when the government's getting a bag of ears, how do they know they're all bandits or enemy combatants, right? So they would sometimes go through these villages and just wipe everybody out. So what ends up happening, which is pretty fascinating, is that the entire country essentially becomes an armed camp. And so there are st- these, these, these peasants and these ordinary people will build stockades in the mountains or wherever they can and form gangs for self-protection. So then the entire countryside is militarized. And everywhere you go, like, you know, there are local militia, there are soldiers, there are government forces, and everybody is essentially armed to the teeth and ready to defend themselves. And it's a really interesting process how the Manchus have to try to demilitarize society once they take over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's turn back to infrastructure. Um, and uh, but 
draws me here is, again, reading about the sheer amount of wealth and material that was poured into these armies. Um, millions of tales. Am I pronouncing that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for our listeners, a single tale was equivalent to about 1.3 ounces of silver. Uh, were spent annually on arms, supply, and payroll. You know, that, that draws two questions from, from my perspective. I mean, first, how invasive was, for lack of a better term, a military-industrial complex in Ming China? And then secondly, I guess the follow-up is, you know, just how much corruption would there have been in a system like this? Did all the silver find its way to its intended use? Yeah, um... Well, first of all, you know, the, the, the problem was is that the, the military-industrial complex, whatever, such as it was, was not um, you know, sophisticated or developed enough to ensure kind of standardization, delivery, etc., although they wanted that. I mean, and the problem is the government was divided into ministries or sort of branches of government. And so the military fell under the purview of both the Ministry of War and the Ministry of Revenue. And so those two ministries had to work together to supply and outfit the armies. And then there were various bureaus and depots below them. And so, and so the problem was, and answer to the second question, right, is that there was tremendous corruption at virtually every level of, of the hierarchy. And so... Um, you know, there was all kinds of skimming off the top, you know, when taxes were collected, um, when money was distributed and, you know, commanders would inflate their um, the number of troops in their units so that they could get the pay for these soldiers. So that was one of the problems the government has is, you know, on paper, you know, this unit has, you know, 3,000 troops. In fact, they probably got 750 and the commanders and the officers are skimming the pay for 3,000. Mm-hmm. And then when a, when a battle comes up, the government's assuming that you've got your 750 that you're, or your, your 3,000 that you're going into battle with. But in fact, you're operating with a quarter of that. Um, and so then, you know, there are all kinds of problems with that. Uh, and, and, um, and, and then, you know, there are, there are mutinies or repeated mutinies because troops are, their, their pay or their rations are months in arrears. Because what eventually happens is that initially they would supply the equipment and stuff, but then later the soldiers would be expected to bring their own outfits or uniforms, sometimes their own weapons, <laughs> into, into the army, and then the government would give them money to buy stuff, to buy other things that they needed, or sometimes even to buy their weapons. And, um, of course, the money doesn't always get there, and the food doesn't always get there either. And so there were serious problems with corruption and embezzlement and yet another problem that the Ming had was actually that the taxes were way too low. And so even though they keep raising taxes to pay for the military expenditures, the initial levels of tax were pretty low because um, they had kind of frozen the tax registers centuries before. So the population figures were all wrong. And mm-hmm. so they were, they were essentially levying taxes for 60 million people on a population of 150. And so, and then, of course, as is often the case, the leading tax dodgers were the wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they would get poor people to commute their lands and stuff to them because then they'd give the poor people a lower tax rate than what they would have to pay the government. But then the wealthy, you know, they didn't technically own the land or they would hide it. And so there were all these problems with, with, with just land not being taxed because it was hidden and they were, they were um, the, the wealthy people were, were preventing it 
from uh, being taxed and they weren't paying their taxes. So then the government responds by sending out eunuch thugs to shake the wealthy down. And this, of course, creates more stress in society and um, you know more disaffection with the Ming. But then what happens histori- historiographically is that the people that write the histories are these wealthy people. So like, oh, the corrupt government was shaking down the commoners with eunuch right. thugs. And it's like, no, they were shaking down you because you weren't paying your taxes. Um, and it's really a complicated thing. But it's interesting to see because then when the Manchus take over, and uh, I've just been reading this stuff the last week for the current project, they, all these surcharges that were levied to fight the Manchus, they actually keep those taxes um, <laughs> for like 40 years. They're in, they're in control now. But because the tax sort of collection apparatus is already still in place and they're still fighting the Ming, so those those fight the Manchu surcha- surcharges become fight the Ming surcharges. Oh, that's grand. <laughs> that's grand. What about Japan and Korea? You know, these, these latter wars, the Ming wars that you write about, come 11 years after the Toyotomi invasion of Korea that you write about in an earlier book. Uh-huh. What is the response of these regional players to the collapse of the Ming? Oh, uh, well, a uh, good, good question. Um, with Korea, it's very personal. Um, because obviously the Koreans are geographically, they're right there. And so they get drawn into the, uh, to the war with the Manchus essentially from the beginning because the Manchus, the Koreans are essentially at their rear. And so they're worried about them and um, worried about them allying with the Ming. And in fact, there are, as you know, described in the book, there are these sort of semi-independent warlords operating in this sea between Korea and China and, um, you know, fighting the Manchus, but also raiding and plundering Korea. And so eventually what happens to the poor Koreans is they get invaded twice by the Manchus. And in the second invasion, it's pretty devastating, the one in 1637, and they're forced to send a couple of princes as hostages to the Manchu court and basically sever ties with the Ming and no longer be a vassal state of the Ming, but instead be vassals of the uh, Manchus. So though the Koreans never completely accepted that, and through the entire Chosun dynasty, which lasts until 1910, there were Ming loyalists in Korea who performed sacrifices to the Emperor Wan Li and, and kept Ming court robes and kept the Ming calendar and all these other things to show their loyalty to the Ming rather than to the Manchus. Um, the other thing interesting that the Koreans do is when the Manchus go back in 1637, they bring these Korean gunsmiths back to Manchuria to help them manufacture weapons. And so the Koreans are involved in uh, that respect too. And so the Koreans are very directly involved with Japan. What happens there, of course, is that, you know, there's a civil war after the death of Toyotomi Hideyoshi for control of Japan. And then the Tokugawa family and their allies win that war. And so they effectively then say, all right, we're not going to really get involved in continental affairs. They eventually negotiate some trade agreements with Korea, but they try as much as possible to stay out of the war with the Manchus and the Ming. Later, the Ming loyalists try to get the Japanese involved on their side, but the Japanese, they they say, no, we're not going to get involved. And so they pretty much stay out of it. And, um, and so Japan is not so much affected by it. Um, other than maybe, you know, perhaps economically in terms of some trade, but um, Korea is intimately involved. And so, and, and, and that actually, it actually leads to a, I forgot, it leads to a coup in Korea because in the 1620s, the guy who was the king of Korea 
had been um, he had been the prince during the Japanese invasions, and he was sort of tepid about supporting the Ming. So he gets overthrown and replaced by a guy who's more pro Ming, and that's what invites the the Manchu invasions of Korea. Hmm. What's the turning point, or rather, the tipping point in the Ming Wars? Um, which tipping point? You mean the tipping point that leads to the um, eventual collapse of the government of Beijing? Yeah, yeah, to, 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 to the demise of the Ming. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, there are so many. It's 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 funny because when you read different Chinese sources, everybody's kind of got their opinion of which tipping point is the most important. Um, you know, it's uh, some people say it's as early as sixteen. 30, when they execute the minister Yuan Chonghuan, who had been the guy who actually kills Nurhachi in the Battle of Ningyuan in 1626, Nurhachi, the founder of the Manchu dynasty, and uh, Yuan then gets caught up in these factional battles at court and gets framed for colluding with the Manchus, in part by the Manchus, they frame him. And so he gets executed. So some people say that was it. After Yuan was dead, there was nobody who could govern the Northeast, and therefore they were open for um, you know, destruction. I think you can actually even go a little bit later, or quite a bit later. I mean, in, in the Northeast, the problem is because there's multiple threats, right? So you've got the Manchus in the Northeast, and then you've got the peasant rebels that are raging in you know, China proper. And I still think that had they had just one of those major threats – they may well have lasted significantly longer. The problem was is that you had multiple threats. At the same time, yeah. Yeah, and, and the peasant rebels were not a unified group. There were a number of very prominent peasant rebel leaders. I mean, three really big ones, and they eventually sort of pick each other off. But there are two left, even when the Manchus invade. And so I think, you know, in the Northeast, it's probably the, the loss of uh, Songshan and Jinzhou, those two fortresses who were like kind of the last two bastions. That would have been in 1642. Um, that kind of seals the deal in the Northeast, but they could, they were still holding the Great Wall or sort of holding the Great Wall at that point. Right. Um, and then in, um, in central China, I would say it doesn't happen until the fall of 1643 when uh, Li Zicheng, uh, the peasant rebel leader, kills uh, Sun Chuanting, a uh, military commander who had been told to pursue Li and go out in the countryside rather than defend the last sort of major strategic pass that was going to be the gateway to Beijing. And he tells the emperor, this is a terrible idea. We need to hold this pass. And I think those, so 1642 in the Northeast, 1643 in the uh, sort of central China are, you know, that's sort of when they're, they're the fate of them in Beijing is sealed. And remember, as you know, in the book, there are debates about whether to even pull back to Nanjing, to the South capital, before this, like the emperor just abandoned Beijing, and they decide not to do this, you know, drawing on precedents from Chinese history. The Song Dynasty had done this, and they were excoriated for you know capitulating the barbarians. And it's sort of it's better to die in the you know in Beijing than to you know leave. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because you know Chongzhan, the last Ming emperor, was a terrible emperor in most respects. But he still gets a fair amount of respect for having, I guess, the dignity to hang himself in Beijing rather than to run away. Mm. So even though at the end it looked like he was trying to get out of Beijing and he just he couldn't find a way out, so he hung himself. But um, but it is interesting that that's sort of how his memory has gotten better because of that, despite all the bad things he does. But I think it was pretty late, and it's interesting because even later 
there was a chance that the Manchus could have been defeated and rolled back. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's that, that's the book I'm working on now. That's that's those are the things I'm exploring. Okay. So. Well, well, counterfactual time. Yeah. How could things have gone differently in the Ming Wars? You know, what would have been the 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 one or two events that could have turned things around? You, you allude to one with the idea of the the rebels in the south being placated. Yeah, I think, well, there's a couple of things. For one, um, as an example, and there were two cases, the two main rebel leaders, uh, Li Zicheng, the Dashing Prince, and Zhang Shanzhong, the uh, the Yellow Tiger, both of those guys had been captured at one point and had surrendered to the Ming authorities. They could have killed either one of them, or both of them, and they don't. I mean, and, and a lot of the traditional sources, Chinese sources, point to that. They're like, if these guys had just been killed, then, you know, the peasant rebellions could have been quelled and they could have devoted all their attention to fighting the Manchus. So, and I do think there is something to say. There were multiple leaders, but those two guys were the ones who really had the charisma and the organizational skills, and the other guys were much less capable than those two. And I think if they had killed one or both of them, I mean, if they had killed one, it would have been easier to kill the other um, because you could have concentrated your forces on them. I think that would have happened. That would have helped. Um, had um, and had the emperor, the Chongzhan emperor, not been so mercurial. I mean, he he had. There were some commanders and officials, as you know from reading the book, who who had good ideas, who were competent, who um, you know were making some progress. But he was like one of those I need instant gratification guys. Mm-hmm. And he he would love the Twitter age. Um, just I could just see him tweeting, you know, you know, disaster in the Northeast. Don't worry, I'm killing seven generals tonight. Uh, <laughs> And um, hashtag heads are rolling, and um, and and that was the problem is that uh, he didn't let these guys ever develop a consistent plan to to kind of and implement it, and so I think that could have changed things. Obviously, the execution of Yuan Chongwan, you know, was not a good thing for the Ming. The commander was executed in, from the northeast. Um, so I, I think there were a number of, uh, as I, I often say, the Ming emperor killed more of his generals than the Manchus did. So it's, uh, that in and of itself is an interesting sort of counter, you know, strong leadership. That's what, that's what they really need about was strong leadership. Mm-hmm. And you can't have that if you're hacking their heads off of your surviving commanders, obviously. Yeah, yeah. If if you if you have to kill all your commanders to prove that you're a strong leader, then you're not a strong leader. Yeah. Well, what are the immediate consequences of the collapse of the Ming Dynasty? I mean, that's probably a basic question, but I, I, I'm compelled to ask it. Well, the well, the immediate consequences are sort of twofold. On the one hand, in some ways, the Ming system had become so sort of corrupt and dysfunctional. It, it and it maybe was almost necessary to blow it up and start over with a with a new regime to kind of clean the air and clean up the bureaucracy and get things functioning again. And what's fascinating about the, what the Manchus do is well, they introduce some innovations, especially at the, the sort of advisory and imperial level. Mm-hmm. The basic structure of government and the organization of government and the the tax system, et cetera, remains basically the same. They essentially retain most of the Ming administrative system and just, you know, clean up some of the corruption. So I think that's one of the big things on, on a more personal level, though. Once that happens, once the, you know, the emperor dies in Beijing, you still end up with 40 years of civil war and strife and destruction 
wreaked upon the countryside. And, um, and that, so there's really a tremendous human cost. And while it's impossible to know the exact numbers, um, you know, some people suggest that as much as like a third of the population dies in the, in the hundred years between 1600 and 1700. (laughs) And, um, so, I mean, it's tremendously devastating, you know, demographically, and, um, you know, in terms of the countryside and just the destruction and, and, and the stuff I'm reading now is all about you know, how these cities were emptied and 97% of the population was killed in one province. I mean, that, I think that figure's high. But, um, but still, I mean, I think that's also the sort of secondary uh, implication of it. Yeah, we take the global view. I mean, in a way, isn't it Europe's rise to world empire that fuels the main wars? Hmm. Uh, in in what ways? I mean, I, I think the developments are much more regional. I mean, the Europeans are they're around and they're on the fringe. Well, I'm I'm thinking the the, the flooding of world markets with with specie and gold and silver. Oh, okay. Coming okay. out of Spain. I mean, you and you kind of I think yeah. you allude to that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were thinking in a more military sort of dissemination of military technology. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Or or better. I mean, I would put it the way I would put it is that. The economic vitality of the Ming Empire fuels the creation of global trade. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's sort of you know the real big question, right? Because you know it's according to those who specialize in such things, maybe forty percent of the world's silver or even more was going into China mm-hmm. in the seventeenth century, and so that's why the Portuguese or the yeah, Portuguese are in Macau, and why the Spanish end up setting up Manila as a sort of trading entrepot. And of course, then that links, you know, Asia to the new world, right. to Europe. And so, yeah, definitely. And, and, and that, and the war does have implications for that mm-hmm. in the sense of, okay, you know, is this sort of China market for silver going to go away? And it ends up not going away. Right. I mean, the, the Qing end up restoring things, although, there are some issues with their maritime system and how they eventually set it up. I mean, and, and actually, you talked counterfactual earlier. There are some scholars that suggest had the Ming not been defeated by the Manchus or had they continued to exist or been replaced by another Chinese dynasty, that perhaps China would have been a much more aggressive and engaged overseas naval power because in the late Ming, that seemed to be the direction they were going. Right. Um, I mean, that's a that's a fascinating counterfactual that you really, you know, what can you do with that? But but it is an interesting thing because people are like, oh, well, China's always been isolated. And they closed their doors and they, they restricted the foreigners. Well, I mean, a lot of the Qing maritime policies, it was because they were fighting these Ming loyalists in the 17th century. And so they were trying to deny those guys, uh, you know, sources of supplies and stuff along the Chinese coast. And that's why some of these things were brought into effect. Mm-hmm. Why should this war matter to Western historians? And not just military historians, but, you know, global historians as well. And, and, you know, in saying this also, you know, what kind of follows after your research? Okay, um, well, I think uh, some of the things I've raised before um, earlier in this conversation, right, um, for the, the fact of, a, you've got, um, you know, you've got the demographic and sort of backdrop effects of these global ecological and economic crises and sort of how these, you know, 
sort of demographic tipping points come into play and lead to things like peasant rebellion and, you know, regime change and how that affects, you know, and that wasn't just in China, right? It was around the world. And, and Jeffrey Parker has done a great job of engaging that in his most recent tome. It was like 900 page book he wrote a couple of years ago. Um, and so I think that's one area, certainly one area of connection. The, uh, the engagement with new military technologies and their use in a variety of settings on the battlefield is uh, something of, I'd say, use and interest of military historians, you know, the Jesuits that were present on both sides, on the Ming and the Manchu side, and their involvement. And in fact, some of them ended up serving one of the peasant rebel leaders in the Southwest after the Ming fell. There were these two Jesuit priests that were there for three years advising this guy. Um, so you've got that kind of international connection and a growing awareness in China of this outside world, even though they were primarily engaged with Asia. Um, so that would be another one. Um, I think in the sense of people doing comparative military history, this really gives you a, an, a, the ability, because of the sources, you get a great chance to kind of look at the social and personal costs of warfare in the early modern era and how war is experienced, how war is remembered how it traumatizes people, how it shapes identity and consciousness. I mean, this war is very important for the Chinese even today because it sort of reflects China resisting foreigners. And uh, and they really use it in a kind of a nationalistic sense. And it's interesting because you'll see how some of these primary or these secondary sources today will talk about like the Ming resistance in the 1650s showed the unity of the Chinese people against foreign invasion. Yet, you know, today they claim the Manchus as a Chinese people, right? They're one of the recognized minorities of China. So they're just as much a part of China as these other minorities that are fighting with the Han Chinese against the invaders. But it definitely forms a part of China's identity today and their sort of national consciousness and how they kind of engage with the outside world. And I think that has some resonance um, for, for, you know, a you know, broader setting um, too. Okay. Okay, we're just about to wrap things up here. Um, and as you know, if you, if you listen, uh, we have two standard last questions for all of our guests. First, what are you reading now you'd like to share with our listeners? <laughs> uh, well, in addition to normal research stuff, actually the book I just picked up was called uh, Japan 1941 by Ari Hota. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar with that book. Yeah, that's that's my bed. That's on my bedside table right now, and um, and so I'm only I'm only about a chapter or two into it, but it's a very interesting look at okay, why did Japan go to war in 1941? You know, what were the the military and social trends? Why did they feel compelled to attack the United States from the Japanese perspective? Right. And so it's really getting into the sort of nitty gritty of you know what Japan's view of the world was in 1941. And so that's, that's sort of the, uh, the personal reading I'm doing now besides, you know, just being buried in, you know, Ming history. Sure. sure. It's a great choice. I, mean, I recommend that book highly as well. Um, second, what's next in your research and writing slate? You refer that you're, you're working on a project now. Yeah, actually the book I'm working on now is a sequel to this one that we just talked about. It's called on the trail of the yellow tiger. Uh, War Trauma and Social Dislocation in uh, the Ming-Qing Transition. 
And so essentially that book is after it takes place after the, uh, the emperor kills himself, the Ming dynasty falls. And uh, one of the peasant rebel leaders, Zhang Shenzhong, not the guy who takes Beijing, but the other main leader sets himself up in Sichuan province in Southwest China and sets up a kingdom there and starts, you know, terrorizing the locals and things. And so, um, you know, with, with a bunch of uh, his lieutenants and then he's resisting the Manchus, but then actually, interestingly enough, once he's killed by the Manchus, his lieutenants all become Ming loyalists and then defend the Ming uh, claimants because there are dozens of these imperial princes who are all related to the deceased emperor. And so they set up these resistance regimes all over China. And so the new book is specifically about southwest China because that's the area that is affected longest by the devastation. And so I'm looking at the next 20 years of the resistance to these groups and the creation of independent warlords, peasant rebels, Ming loyalists, and the Qing invaders all together. And so that's what this book is doing. Um, and, um, you know, I'm well into it. I'm hoping to finish the book, the manuscript by next summer, and then it'll be published, you know, eight months after that or whatever. It's already under a contract with um, University of Nebraska Press for the War Society and the Military series that they that's do. That's great. That's great. Dan, thanks for joining us on New Books in Military History. Well, thank you. It was fun to have a chance to talk about my book. Great. And Bob Wintermute signing off. Thank you for listening.